If you have your Bibles, if you could open them to Luke 1, we'll be in Luke 1 and 2. We have two accounts about the birth of Jesus. One is found in Matthew, the other in Luke. Matthew's account, we didn't read the whole thing, but it begins with a genealogy. Something that Luke includes after the baptism of Jesus, which is quite remarkable. He doesn't put it before the birth of Jesus, but after his baptism, before he began his earthly ministry. The focus in Matthew is on the birth of Jesus fulfilling the promises found in the Old Testament. We've talked about this before, the idea of promises versus predictions. A lot of people like to talk about the birth of Jesus as fulfilling prophecies or predictions. Matthew sees it as fulfilling promises. In Luke's account, which we'll be looking at today, what we find, the focus is on songs on singing. Although we're not told that these are sung in the the way that we normally think of singing, traditionally they've come to be known as songs. The first is Mary's song, which was not read today, but it's in chapter 1, if you want to look at it, verses 46 to 55. It's also known as the Magnificat, because in Latin um, she says, "My uh, my soul glorifies the Lord, magnifies the Lord, Magnificat, okay? And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Actually, I, th- I think we should read this. Um, beginning at verse number 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever even as he said to our fathers. I find it interesting that this song of Mary, the Magnificat, was actually banned in three countries over the past century. Uh, The first was in India, then in Guatemala, and then in Argentina. It is during the British rule in India that this, this was banned. You could not do Mary's song because the British are the rulers, and she's talking about God pulling the rulers down, and they don't want that. In the 1980s, the Guatemala government discovered that Mary's words about God's love for the poor uh, were seen as too dangerous and revolutionary. That the song had been creating quite a stir among Guatemala's impoverished masses. Mary's words were inspiration, or were inspiring the Guatemalan poor to believe that change was indeed possible. And then in Argentina as well, uh, I don't know if you know about the desaparecidos, the disappeared ones. When the military junta took over, 30,000 people disappeared. In the Philippines, we had the equivalent, those who were salvaged, that, that uh, government forces or pro-government forces took these people and they disappeared. And so you have the famous, the mothers of Plaza Mayo, who were there with the pictures of their children who had disappeared. Um, and the military junta outlawed any public display of Mary's song. Don't sing Mary's song. 
Songs are powerful, and if nothing else you hear today, you need to remember that. Those in power recognize this, and that's why Mary's song was banned. The second song we have is from Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, in verses 68 through 79, the Benedictus as it's known. It's on the occasion of the circumcising and the naming of his son, John. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. And then in chapter 2, the heavenly host with the angel song when they appeared to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And then what Lonnie read to us, the song of Simeon. Uh, In Latin again, nunc dimittis, now dismiss your servant. Now let your servant depart in peace, because he had seen the Lord's Christ. It is interesting that Luke has all these songs at the beginning of his gospel, and we find at the end of his gospel something quite different than the other three gospels. We have people in the temple, God's people, praising God. And I would assume that this involves singing as well. And all the singing, and all the singing we've done today, raises some questions. Why do we sing so much at Christmas? And why do we sing at all as part of our worship? Why do human beings sing? I think if we begin to answer these questions, we'll begin to develop a theology of singing. We do so with the paradigm as we followed creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. In creation, we must ask and answer the questions, is music something we have on our own? Why do we sing? Is music something God gave to us? Is music something which reflects the image of God? What we find at creation is singing. When God speaks to Job, ask him a series of questions, among them is, were you there when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You may remember from Titus's sermons on the Songs of Ascent that poetry, Hebrew poetry, you have a line and then the line next to it basically says the same thing as the first line but in different words. So the first line is when the morning stars sang together. The second line to repeat it is and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The morning stars sang together. I find it interesting that if you go to Job 1, when the whole story begins and Satan appears before God, in the NIV, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. In the ESV, in the King James, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So morning stars and sons of God are used interchangeably. I think even more fascinating is at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches, speaking to John. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. He is both the Alpha and Omega. He is the root as well as that which grows from the root. It is because he is the root that the line continues. Otherwise, if Jesus was not the root, we would not have him being born in Bethlehem. The bright morning star is also used in Revelation chapter 2 in the letter to Thyatira, the church in Thyatira, 
I will also give him the morning star. In Numbers, we have the story of how you know, Israel's coming to the promised land and the pagans are freaking out. And so one of the kings hires a prophet, Balaam, to come and curse the Israelites. So somehow they'll I don't, all be killed or disappear or they won't be able to come in to the pagan territory. And he says, Balaam says, I see him, not now, I will behold him, but not here. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. So star and scepter are mentioned together as Balaam actually, not knowingly, I think, prophesies the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. So I would say that in the beginning in creation, we see that singing is taking place, shouting for joy. And it isn't a uniquely human thing. In fact, the sons of God, the morning stars, these aren't humans. These are creatures that God has created, but they're not humans. We find that the rest of creation also sings. In Psalm 19, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights above, praise him all his angels, praise him all his heavenly host, praise him sun and moon, praise him all you shining stars, praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. It's actually from Psalm 148. And then from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So creation sings. The heavenly beings sing. Um, We do have a hint of a song when God puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib out and creates Eve and then he presents Eve to Adam and then Adam breaks out into poetry. Is it possibly a song? This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. What about the fall? What what about after Adam and Eve sinned? In the midst of sin and chaos, we have one of the descendants of Cain Okay, so we would say not a good line, the line of Cain. His name is Jubal, and we are told in Genesis 4.22, he was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. And so at this point, we have to ask ourselves a question. Is music a gift from God, shown even in the line of the one who is cursed, Cain, or is it something that's part of the fallen world? That music is only part of the fall, sin. Well, we know this can't be the case because we have the morning stars singing. We have the sons of God shouting for joy when the world is created. We must acknowledge that music and singing are a part of what it means to be a creature, to be made in the image of God. I was looking through and I found it interesting. Only one time in the book of Genesis is singing as singing mentioned specifically. It's the story of Jacob when Jacob ran away from his father-in-law, Laban. You may remember the story. And Laban chased after him. Seven days later, he caught him and he scolded his son-in-law for leaving. This is what he said. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I, I could send you away with joy and singing? 
to the music of tambourines and harps. A farewell party. Why didn't you tell us, Jacob? We could have had this farewell party. What in the Philippines we call a despedida. We could have this time and we could sing during this party of saying goodbye. It's at this point that there's something really important we need to remember that I think we forget so easily. The Bible is not exhaustive. It doesn't tell us everything, okay? The Bible is sufficient. It tells us what we need to know, okay? So we don't find perhaps as much as we might want about singing in the Bible, about human beings singing like at parties, uh, singing lullabies, um, love songs, lamentations, while they're working, while they're going to war. But when we look through human history, we find all these things. That in fact, people do sing almost in every aspect of life. By the way, we do have songs of lament in the Bible. We have a love song, uh, Psalm 45. So why do people sing? This is a series in itself. And I would say it is simply to communicate in a way that differs from merely speaking. To sing is not the same as speaking. A song not only has words, it has a melody, it has a rhythm, it has harmony, which in fact may operate independent of the lyrics. The lyrics may go in one way and the harmony and everything else go the other way. Um, this is something we should probably have Tom talk about more than me. Um, but it is interesting that in church history, uh, there seem to be two positions on singing. One is, yes, it's a good thing, and the other is, it's a really dangerous thing. Um, Augustine wavered between the two because he said, on the one hand, it's good to sing, but on the other hand, it might stir up, it, it might stir up your senses, and it might become sort of a gratifying thing and move you in ways that perhaps you should not be moved. Um, he was very cautious when it came to the power of music. And his endorsement of music was sort of provisional. Yes, we can sing, but we need to be careful. Uh, it could be good, but it could be corrupted. In the Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin called music a gift from God. And this is interesting because up to that point, people in the congregation did not sing during the service. You had a choir that would do that but they encouraged the people in the congregation to sing. They saw it as a gift from God. But they emphasized different things. Luther celebrated as God's own creation. Calvin regarded it as something that is given through us. It's sort of a human invention, but it is something that God does through us. They did believe that music could be corrupted. Um, I think Calvin was a little more strict in that regard, uh, seeing it as having a really a real strong potential for corruption. Um, and Luther thought more of it as a medium through which we could preach the gospel. So the hymn that we've sung in the past, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the, the music itself is actually the music that they sang in bars, in taverns. So it was a melody that people were familiar with. And Luther's like, that's fine. Listen to the words. The words are what are important. John Wesley was a strong believer in singing, but he also was ambivalent. He wasn't quite sure about it. Um, 
this is what he said. Above all, sing spiritually. Not quite sure what that means. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing God more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound, but offered to God continually. His brother, Charles Wesley, wrote over 6,500 hymns. Can you imagine that? 6,500 hymns. Um, Some of which we sing, and can it be, Christ the Lord is risen today, and today we sang one of his hymns, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He referred to singing as a holy pleasure. Um, You could see where people might get nervous here, because holy and pleasure are not two words people generally put together. Pleasure sounds too dangerous for its own good. I think that's why hymns are really important, because, in fact, they have been written thoughtfully. They've been sung over a period of time. We're not the first people to sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Okay? And so, hopefully, by God's grace, we are not carried away, away from the message of the lyrics. There's a quote attributed to Augustine, but now people are saying, no, he didn't really say that. But in any case, the saying is, whoever sings to God in worship prays twice. Hinting at the reality that singing is more than just singing. It is, in fact, praying to God. Why do we sing? Why do God's people sing? This is where we come to redemption. And in fact, that is what we find. Singing is, among God's people, a response to his redemption. The first song with lyrics found in the Bible is found in Exodus 15. Uh, Israel has come out of Egypt. Pharaoh comes running after them. They pass through the Red Sea. God closes the Red Sea on Pharaoh and his army. And so they sing a song. Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. This was written and sung in response to God's redeeming them out of Egypt and saving them from Pharaoh and the Red Sea. It is interesting, and this is the consummation in Revelation 15. We are told that those who were victorious over the beast, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. And the song of the Lamb is great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. From the song of Moses on, what we find of singing among God's people is in worship, it is in response to God's redemption, his salvation. Deuteronomy 31, now write down for yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. I don't know if you've noticed this about certain things, not everything, but sometimes it's easier to remember a song or the lyrics to a song than it is to remember a poem or something prose. There's just something in our brains that 
that singing seems to stick with us. And God says, okay, all these things I've told you, put it into a song so that you will remember it. In Judges 15, uh, Deborah defeated uh, the enemy, uh, Jabin. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Ahinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. And so we find in response to God redeeming them, saving them, rescuing God's people, sing. We find singing mentioned time and time again. We have, in fact, the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms. Uh, Some are songs. Titus has been preaching to us of the 15 songs of ascent. At least 17 psalms have in the title a song. Others are referred to as a mictum or a masculine. These are musical terms. Others have the description, this is for the choir master, which would seem to indicate that it's a song, that it is something to be sung. Or with stringed instruments, which again indicates that it is to be sung. Paul mentions singing in his letters, he quotes from the Old Testament twice. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name from Psalm 18. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. Psalm 117. In Ephesians, he says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And why are we grateful? Because of God's redemption. By the way, Paul practiced what he preached. You may remember in Acts 16 when he and Silas were arrested and beaten and thrown in prison uh, there in Philippi. We are told when they had sung a hymn, I'm sorry, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. They've been beaten, they're in chains, and what do Paul and Silas do? They sing. And then what I started to read a moment ago is from the Last Supper. We are told that after the Last Supper, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They sang Psalm 118. So we see this in the life of Paul. We see it also in the life of Jesus. In essence, the last thing he does with the group of disciples is they sing a hymn together. And what about the consummation once we are in the eternal state? Um, We studied the book of Revelation some time ago, and we found singing mentioned time and time again. And I'll only mention one passage here from chapter 5. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. This is Christmas Sunday. We don't have time to do a whole series here on singing, but we do have the time to consider why we sing. I think perhaps more importantly, we have the time to sing, which is what we have done this day. However, lest I give the wrong impression, I think it is important that we know why we sing. It's, it's great to sing. It's wonderful to sing. And to sing the carols today has been great. But we need to understand why we do this. You know, Paul had trouble with the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he's trying to straighten them out. And he says, I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. There is a time in which perhaps the music can, can move us. Maybe we get goosebumps or whatever. But we need to know what we're singing and not be lost in the music, but also, in a sense, to be lost in the words, to know what the words are saying. So why do we sing? We sing to proclaim. We sing to praise. Um, Isaac Watts wrote in a hymn, We're Marching to Zion, Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. You don't know our God? Then don't sing. Refuse to sing. It's something that God's people are to do. It's part of fellowship. As I read to you earlier, we are to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It is to pray. So if you think of our worship service, we have an opening prayer. We have the prayer um, after we've mentioned petitions and thanksgiving, the prayer after communion, and then finally the closing prayer. But in fact, each of our hymns is a prayer. We are praying. Whoever sings to God in worship prays twice. We sing because of joy. In James 5, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? He should sing songs of praise. But why do we praise? Because of God's redemption. But let's get back to the first question is, why do we sing so much at Christmas? Of all the events of the religious calendar, Christmas has the most hymns uh, that go with it. We have Christmas carols. And why is that? Well, why did they sing at the first Christmas? Why did they sing before the first Christmas? In a word, joy. But it was not simply joy. It was because of the coming redemption. This child represented redemption, God's salvation for his people. Zechariah began his song with these words, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. It is redemption that should lead us to sing. In Simeon's song, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. Israel. Joy sometimes cannot simply be expressed by speaking. It must be expressed in song. By the way, I looked up the word carol in the dictionary. It means a joyful song, especially a Christmas hymn. We'll go with that. It is a joyful song. 
But I think we need to remember that we sing because we are human. We sing because we are God's people. We sing because of his redemption. We sing to one another. That's why we have congregational singing, so that we can hear each other sing, that we can join our voices together. And hopefully, by God's grace, with hearts filled with joy, because of his salvation, because of his redemption. Let's pray together. Father, there are many things we do in life that we don't really think about. And singing can be one of those. Even as your people, singing is very much a part of our worship, but we don't always wonder why we're doing it. We thank you for what we find in scripture of your people singing, of your creation singing, of the heavenly host singing. And it all looks to your redemption, the sending of your son which we remember at Christmas. Mary giving birth to a baby, not to a full-grown man, but to a baby who is helpless. Yet he is the redemption of his people. And those that know about him, the shepherds, Simeon, Anna, they sing because your redemption has been revealed. It's been a while now, but we live in a culture that sees Christmas primarily in economic terms. Um, The fact that it is the revelation of your redemption really has been forgotten. May we as your people not forget. And as we have sung and as we're going to sing one more song, may our hearts be filled with joy because of what you have done for us. Thank you for bringing us together today. We thank you for the gift of your son. I pray in Jesus' name.